0: Hello again. Good morning. Good to see all of you here. Um, I appreciate you being here. And it's uh, like Blake said, it's exciting. This will be the last time I'm here for at least a couple Sundays. I may just move there. If the the beaches are warm, I may just, you know, never come back. But uh, one way you can kind of stay engaged, uh, especially if you're kind of interested, like what what are you guys doing? What's going to happen down there? Uh, If you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you can follow along. and, And literally each day of our trip will be live updates and photos from our team. So it's a way for you to get kind of engaged in what's happening. And if if you're helping support that trip, uh, it's a great way to follow along. It's going to be really, really exciting, all that God does. I'm very, very excited about not just the trip we're going on, but the chance that we'll have uh, over the next year as Center Church to take another team and be a part of that partnership on a more regular basis. And so pray now if that's you. If God's telling you to do that, you can do that. Uh, the second thing is I actually want to throw that giving slide up one more time, if you can do that real quick. Uh, just like Blake said, I mean, the way that the mission moves forward is through people just like you and just like me who kind of sacrificially give. Um, but as you may have noticed, like I noticed over the last couple of weeks, there's been that red number, and I'm not a mathematician, but anytime I see a red number, I'm like, ah, oh, that's bad. <laughs> I don't want that. I want it to be green. Uh, and so that means there's a deficit there between the weekly need and what we're bringing in in terms of tithes and offerings each weekend. So I say that just to highlight it, just so that you're aware of it. Um, as a team, as leaders, we're not like pressing the panic button and shutting things down and, and firing staff or any of that kind of thing. Uh, but we do want you to know we're aware of this. We're praying about this. And I want to encourage you, if you call Senator Church home especially, to pray about this with me too, that God would just stir and move and keep kind of drawing people into that rhythm of generosity and and tithing, that's really how we move forward. And so, uh, again, our job is to be good stewards of what God has given us. Like, I I can't twist anybody's arm to give. You can't force your neighbor to give or anything like that. And so, it really, it's a response to God's generosity and faithfulness to us. And so, I just want to let you in on that as a church, that we're watching that really carefully. We're dialing some things back so that we can make sure we're good stewards, uh, especially as we have opportunities like Christmas and just... Uh, looking ahead to the next year, there's so many big things God wants to do through us. Uh, and I would hate for that little thing uh, to be the thing in the way. And so I just wanted to bring it to you so you're aware of it and you have information. Um, a wise man once said, People with information make better decisions. So I'm just giving that to you. I'd say, as a church, we want to make sure we're making good financial decisions and caring for um, the resources God has put in our hands. So, uh, sound good? Move on? All right, perfect. Let's do it. So. Uh, again, I don't know all of you perfectly. Uh, some of you have never met before, but here's what I want to say. If I want to get to know a person here, you know, I do one thing first. I creep their Facebook profile. You know, that, that's the way. If you want to know a person, you just do some digging on there. You will learn everything uh, you need to know. Like I've had a few people just over the last couple months add me as a friend. I'm like, I bet they're doing that. I bet they're trying to figure me out. Like they're trying to figure out where's he from. And, and where does he go to church, and what's he do for work? Like All these different kinds of things. What are his kids like? What's his family like? All this kind of stuff. Kid. <laughs> I have one. Kid-like. Um, but what I want to say is, <laughs> I, Lindsay challenged me to do this, and it was a painful exercise. She literally said, well, if you're going to talk about Facebook, you got to show people your first Facebook, Facebook profile picture. I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't need to do that. I'm off the hook. Like, they, they don't know. I may not be friends with all of them. So in the spirit of vulnerability, uh, here's a take of, take a look here, 2009 John Corbett. Wow. Yes, a, a specimen of God's creation right there. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is high school John. This is senior. I remember this was like the homecoming parade. That's why I'm in a suit. But it was like, if you just want a picture of a high school or like just too cool for school, that was me. I'm not even looking at the camera. In the photo, I'm just like looking away, and I was like, yeah, that's a good one. That represents my life pretty well. So anyway, you probably, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of things we could say if we all had to put ours up here, but I'll embarrass myself first. So most of us have a Facebook account, or at least you're very familiar with Facebook. I mean, it's a social network that was created by Mark Zuckerberg many years ago, where initially he was trying to build some community and relationships on college campuses, Like when Facebook first started, you had to have a college like ID. You had to be enrolled in a college to get on this platform. So eventually, billions of dollars later, many years later, it has grown and kind of exploded into the social network platform that all of us use for everything from baby announcements to financial questions to car recommendations. I mean, we use it for everything. All the highlights and, and even some of the biggest questions of our life kind of hover around this social network. It's really interesting. But Mark Zuckerberg is not hurting financially for this this little idea he had, right? He's got over $47 billion in his net worth to, to access. Now, if I had $47 billion, I don't know about you, if I had $47 billion, here's a couple of the first things I would do. The first thing is I would buy a California king bed. I would just buy a massive bed and be super comfortable every night I go to sleep. I would buy a brand new car. I'm not sure what it would be, but I'd have some options with $47 billion. I'd make sure it's comfortable, and I like riding in it. Um, I would upgrade the house and move into a nice neighborhood, whatever, get lawn care. Whatever kind of comes to mind for you, just with creature comforts, I would make sure I always had Chipotle access. I mean, just constant burritos, you know, like that would be kind of my dream. Now, I don't know what your dream is, but if you're Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, really, at this point in life, this guy could live anywhere in the world. I mean, you name your, your favorite destination or maybe even one you've never been to. He could live there. He could have the most comfortable house, the most comfortable living quarters. He could have really any friends and relationships he wants. I mean, $47 billion gets you into some rooms. Like, there's a lot of access this person has. And I found it really, really fascinating. Last year, Facebook did something really big. They rebranded. I mean, this is millions of dollars worth of, of, of rebranding, marketing stuff, campaigns that were going worldwide. They changed their name from Facebook. Anyone know what they changed it to? Meta, yeah. So a lot of us have seen that. You've probably have seen it when you log in. So, so he gives this kind of public address in the metaverse, like this kind of alternate universe that he's creating for users of Facebook. There's businesses on there, there's churches on there, there's social activities on there, there's conversations and relationships you can have on there. And he literally gives us a dress as an avatar, like as this character in the metaverse. And here's why I just find it fascinating. I mean, this stuff just blows my mind. Is that one of the richest men in the world's dream and the vision for the rest of his life and now his company's life is to escape the real world. Like, a metaverse is not the real thing. Like, you and I can't interact and be together in the metaverse in the same way that if you and I sat down for lunch, we could be together. Like, those relationships really take embodiment. They take work. They Like, if you get close to me, you can see my flaws. You get to know me. You can see where I'm good, where I'm not good, where I'm strong, where I'm weak. I mean, only that kind of relationship gets close enough to actually know things about people, and that's why I kind of get it. Like, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg, I'm like, Man, it would be great to create an alternate reality in which I could curate everything about it. I mean, if I don't like what you're saying, I just click away from you. I just, I just move on. If I don't like the relationship I'm in, I just cancel. I just move on. Like, there's so much access and ability you have in a metaverse that you do not have in face-to-face, in-person relationships. And here's why that's so sticky for us if you're trying to follow Jesus is that if you're trying to follow Jesus, we are gospel people. We believe in the good news of Jesus, that he died for all people, and that love moves into those spaces. And here's one way to put it. This is Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. Only love gets close enough to know. Only love gets close enough to know. And why that's so important is when you're in a metaverse of sorts, or even in our daily lives, we are incredible. Humans are amazing at putting people in categories. Amazing at this, they don't vote like me. They're other than me. They don't spend their money like me. Well, they must. They're different. They're other than me. They're on the highway with the with a sign made out of cardboard. They're other than me. Uh, they they believe that, or they do this with their sexuality. They believe this, or they think that. Like they're other than me, and we put people in categories, and that becomes a way that we dehumanize. And other people, almost subconsciously. And we all do this. Like it or not, we all do this. But only love, friends, gets close enough to know. This is what we're talking about for the next couple of weeks. And, man, this is a hard teaching for me. Uh, if you had to do, like, a spiritual gifts inventory or kind of, like, assess, like, where does John rank in terms of how God has wired him? You know what's at the very, very bottom is shepherding, mercy, and compassion. Those are three, like, churchy words for loving people pretty well. You know, like naturally, like it's, I I have to literally trust God to help me to do that because it's just so, I get so inward focused, so inward bent that this teaching today, it's for me. This parable is for me. And I want to take you to a teaching of Jesus in Luke 16. The reference will be on the screen. So if you have a Bible, uh, pull that out. If you got a phone, just Google quick or pull up a Bible app. Uh, The reference will be there. So if you want to kind of track with these verses, it'll be, it'll help you. In Luke 16, uh, Jesus is teaching disciples, people trying to follow him, and he's teaching Pharisees. Pharisees is another fancy word in the scriptures for spiritually elite people. I mean, they were giving their money away. They were worshiping. They were showing up on Sunday morning. They were engaged, but their hearts were far from the gospel. They didn't understand. So then he gives them both this parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him up to Abraham's side. This kind of reference to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Quick pause. This rich man realizes what's taking place. He realizes he is separated from heaven. He is separated from Abraham, kind of the father of the Jewish faith. He's separated from eternity with God. Like, he is realizing, oh, my goodness, like, what have I done? Like, I was supposed to give this guy money. I was supposed to be charitable to him, generous to him. And I let him just pass away, and now I'm stuck here. And he realizes, like, if you got family, it's like, if I'm going to be stuck here, at least somebody tell my, my family that, that you got to get out of it. Do not follow the same path. He's saying, i got five brothers. I've got other people I, I care about back home. Like, don't let them follow the same path. He says, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham applied, verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I guarantee that story is not one you read every single night to your children. (laughs) I, I guarantee that story is not, your life verse is not in that story. But here's what I know. There's really two things happening in the story that are important for all of us, no matter where you are in faith. The first one is Jesus pointing out the difference, the direct contrast between the rich man and the poor man. You see this in the story. This is how he starts the parable. Uh, the rich man is marked with purple robes. He's wearing these incredible outer garments. Purple robes would have been royalty. The dive to get a purple robe was expensive. You had to be wealthy to acquire this. It was kind of a way you put this purple robe on when you walk outside. It's like a way of saying, I'm the Zuckerbergs of the world. Like I, I'm elite. I've got it figured out. My path to wealth is up and to the right. Like I am. I'm doing this thing right. God's blessing me. I'm on top of the world. But it doesn't just stop there. Like the outer garments are fine, but then it also says he's wearing fine linen, which is like an awesome biblical term for like fancy underwear. That's what this is. Like this guy's literally going to Rivertown Mall and buying only Duluth Trading Company underwear, like fifty bucks a pop. This guy is like splurging on every item of clothing he can find. It's just trying to point out like how much wealth he had available to him. And in direct contrast to the rich man is the poor man. The poor man's not covered in royalty or robes or the finest linens. What does it say? The poor man's covered in sores. But the guy's deteriorating right outside the gate of this rich man's house. He's not covered in royalty. He's not covered in wealth. He's covered in, in poor, being poor and his body falling apart. And you think, yeah, but at least the guy's got some dogs. Like he's got the furry friends, you know? Like, Jesus includes that in the parable. It's like these little golden retrievers running up and, like, licking him. Like, that's not the Jewish picture here. I don't know if you're a dog person or not. That's not the Jewish picture. If you were a Jewish person listening to Jesus tell the parable, he would get to that part and be like, oh, that is disgusting. Like, dogs lived outside the city boundaries often. They were feeding on the carnage and the trash heaps, and dogs were unclean to them. They didn't interact. No one's having a dog in their house. Just nobody. And so that's like adding fuel to the fire of how dark and kind of far down this poor man has got. He's keeping company with, with unclean animals. And maybe you would read this parable like I do. It's like at first glance, it's like, oh, man, we just talked about money. I should give to the poor, you know, like that's the immediate response. It's like the rich man had wealth, the poor man doesn't. This rich man gave probably to charities, but he was missing this poor guy right in front of him. Like he could have given to him. And so the takeaway from that would be next time you see a homeless person on the, the exit you, you frequent, give them some money. And then we pack the Bible up and we go home. But there's something so much more beautiful, so much more challenging Happening in this parable. It's way beyond money. Uh, the kind of theological term for what Jesus is doing here is eschatological reversal. That's a fancy way of saying this is what happens when the kingdom of God breaks into our world. This is what happens when the way God does things intersects with the way you and I do things. This is what happens when God's kingdom culture breaks into our culture. It takes poor people and puts them on top. It takes people who are marginalized It says they are important. It takes, in the Gospel of Luke, over and over again, you see women being elevated. Women didn't have a vote. Women didn't matter in first century, first century Israel. Children were property, property to them. They could discard them if they had a defect or mental challenge. And Jesus is saying, like, we elevate those people. That In the kingdom of God, there's a reversal happening. We care about women. We care about children. We care about poor people. Like, we care about the others in our society. And this story is just a way to illustrate that. I mean, a couple things jump out to me right off the page. In this parable, it's the only parable, you can read them all, it's the only parable that Jesus gives this person a name. He names the person Lazarus. And why is that significant? I mean, Lazarus shows up again in the Gospels, but Lazarus is known to be Jesus' best friend. And eventually Lazarus, the one who passes away, dies of a sickness, and Jesus raises him from the dead. Lazarus means God is my helper. And Lazarus actually is not just named, but he's elevated to this position of being by Abraham's side. Kind of this indicator in Jewish culture that he was in heaven. He was next to God. He was close to God. And the rich man who thought he was close because of his wealth and his prosperity actually was far away. I love what Leonard Sweet, he's a theologian, writes about this. He says, the rich man is in hell, not because he didn't take care of the poor. He actually did take care of the poor better than most. But the rich man is in hell because he thought he had five brothers when God had actually given him six. And this poor man, Lazarus, for the rich man was other. He got five brothers, but this guy's not my problem. you saying in the kingdom of God, that's not how this works. In the kingdom of God gospel people, good news people, people that have surrendered and are following after Jesus, there is no other. There's only brothers and sisters. There is no person who's too far away, who's too broken, who's too different, you know, than you. That is not worthy of love, but only love gets close enough to know. Only love moves us to know people, to increase or decrease, rather, our proximity from people we would describe as other to us. And here's why I love how Jesus ends this parable. This is brilliant. That's why Jesus is just a captivating teacher. Skip ahead. If you have uh, your Bible still open to Luke 16, we'll look at verse 29 through 31. Abraham applies to this rich man who says, hey, tell my brothers. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The way he, basically, he's saying they already know. They know the truth. They know the way to do it. And they're already, if, they're, if they haven't caught it, they're not going to catch it. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham says, back to this rich man. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus is kind of pointing out, this is like a veiled reference, trying to point out, you know how sometimes you're talking to one person, but you really want the other person to hear it, like you're kind of passive-aggressively saying something like, hey, I really hope that you're hearing me say this to this person because you are the one who needs to hear it. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, I'm saying this to everybody, but this is a reference to Pharisees. This is a reference to the judgmental, uh, othering Christian people who are around him. He's saying, hey, if you're not going to get it, like this is the way my kingdom works. If you're not going to get it, you're never going to get it. Like, if you don't understand and see what's taking place... You are missing the gospel. You're missing what's supposed to be good news for all people, not just people who are already in. And what's fascinating, you study the first couple hundred years of church history even. I mean, intense persecution. Intense. I mean, this is like you showing up to church the next week and asking, hey, where are Bob and Sue? And someone filling you in, that they got sent to the gladiators. They were literally in an arena getting ripped apart by animals. That's the reality of And we don't have anything nearly that close uh, to that level of persecution, certainly not in America. And so that was the reality. And yet the church, this group initially of a couple thousand people eventually explodes, spreads across the known world despite heavy, heavy persecution and harassment. How does that even happen? Well, historians kind of point out, really, if you look at the church, there were five distinct things about the church that made it tick that made it work, that that kept it central in the community. And and what I want to point out is just a couple of those. I think they'll be helpful to you and helpful to me as we think about this. I'll give you the first three. The first one was the early church was multiracial and was marked by ethnic harmony. Now, there's a ton of talk in our culture about diversity and inclusion, but often that's a very shallow, surface-level diversity and inclusion this would have been a multiracial ethnic reality where people literally like oversee these church gatherings and be like, how are you guys sitting in the same row? Like if you think maybe politically we get divided along racial lines today, think about I mean, backwards, thousands of years, they were literally divided straight down the middle. You just didn't even have conversation with people, much less worship with them and, and take communion with them or sing songs. Like it was just totally backwards to them. They were multiracial, multiracial. The second was they were a church marked by, come on, somebody. They were a church marked by forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. It was a group of people who cared, who recognized that God had greatly forgiven them, and they were quick to forgive. In a, in a society and culture, which the church found itself in, where you hurt me, I'm taking. I'm t- I'm, you hit me once, I'm hitting you twice back. Like, it was retri- like retribution. I was going to say retributive, but that just sounds way too hard to say. You know, at 1030 in the morning, like, I'm just not going to go there. But it was like that was kind of the, the idea. It was like you, you get payback. You get revenge. Vengeance was the way to do it. And this church was made up of people who said, we're going to forgive you. You hurt us. You take from us. You harass us. We're going to forgive you. We're going to reconcile. We want to have peace in our relationships with every person including our enemies. The third is they were hospitable to the poor and suffering. I mean, if you look in the history books, not even Christian history, you just read history books, the people who were literally crawling through trash dumps, rescuing babies, rescuing mentally ill people, rescuing people born with physical defects, which is what was common in culture. Just throw those people away. They're not chosen. They don't matter. They're other than us. Just get them out of here. We want a pure society. Like, Get them out. And it was the Christians who were diving through, crawling through mud and dirt and trash, rescuing these children, rescuing these men and women, saying they are valuable. They matter to God. We love these people, not just with words, but with our actions, with our deeds. And it's those people who marked the early church. Now, here's what I would, I would do. I would read this list and be like, oh, I knew it. Fine. I've always wondered how would Jesus vote. And now I know. Like, Jesus would be a progressive liberal Democrat. Thank God I can just figure that out now. You know, like the first three, those line up perfectly with that party line. It's like multiracial, yes, forgiveness, yes, reconciliation, reparations, hospitable to the poor. Like, that's what we should be after, right? And then you keep reading the list and it messes with your ideas. So if you keep going, there's two more that, that historians would add to this. The, the next two, would be that the early church was radically dedicated to the sanctity of life, from conception to the moment that person pass, passes away on the church, radically committed to this. Again, they were the ones who, when people in Roman culture didn't want their children, didn't want their babies because they couldn't see or had a twisted limb or something, they would put them on Christians' doorsteps because they knew Christians were going to take care of them. They would raise them, they would figure out a way. Despite poverty, despite persecution, you can trust the Christians to do that. And the fifth was that this group of people was sexually counterculture. The word here is chast. Like they believed in purity. They believed God was actually interested in how they handled their bodies and and how they uh, were keeping their sexuality in the marriage covenant. Like they cared about that. In a culture, again, where Romans were like, Man, basically, and we've studied some of these letters before, it's like it's a sexual free-for-all. Do your thing, no consequence, especially if you're a man, you just get to do whatever you want. People are property. You just enjoy yourself on this life. There's no life to come, so it really doesn't matter. And the Christians are like the most backwards-looking people ever to the, that group of people. It's like, what? why are you only like sleeping with one person, and why are your marriages staying together? Like It just didn't make any sense. It was like totally... It's actually counterculture to, to the society and the community they were in. So if you read those next two and you just took the, out the first three, you'd be like, oh, I figured it out. Jesus is a hardcore conservative watching Ben Shapiro every night. Like, he's, he's that guy. Like, finally, I've seen a vote Republican, and I'll look a little bit more like Jesus. Like, I figured it out. But the problem is all five are there. The problem is Jesus doesn't give the option. He doesn't let you do what we often do and say, that that group is other. That group is different. That group has it wrong. His requirement for gospel people is to get close enough to know. Only love gets close enough to know. What happens when you get to know people, you discover that you're not that different, that you have some other in you too. But only love, only the, the gospel gets close enough to know and friends, I look at that, that's what made Jesus different. That's what made him so unique. He got close enough to know. People who society or Pharisees or Romans would have dis, would kind of discarded as your other. You're not fully human. You're not fully worth love. You're not ful, fully worth uh, value. Jesus got close to those people. He elevates them. He gives them dignity. He has conversation with them. He shares meals. He does countercultural things to, to indicate how, how far he's willing to go to love people up close, eventually culminating in the cross, dying for every single person, sacrificing himself so that we can know true freedom and forgiveness. Now, I look at that list, those five things, and there's one kind of culturally to me that jumps out. There's one I feel like is an important conversation to have for this time and this season as a community. And that's the fourth one dedicated to the sanctity of human life. Uh, maybe you haven't seen, but I'm assuming most of you have. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be voting together as a society, as a state, on Proposal 3, uh, which is primarily to do with abortion and how that's handled on the state level, and even on some level uh, locally. And if you're a guest and you're checking things out, what you need to know is we don't talk about this kind of stuff every single Sunday. We're not a political church. I will never use like this stage or the privilege of sharing God's word as a place to tell you who to vote for or give you a stack of yard signs. And say, hey, put those in your front yard. That's what we're all doing as a church. Like, that's not my role. That's not my not my job description. That's not my calling. Uh, but I do want you to prayerfully discern. Uh, this proposal, and I want to give you a couple words. I want to actually invite Jen Rubick, who's here, serves with Center Kids. She's going to actually help close our time out. I want to invite her up here, and I want you to know, like, as a staff, as a leadership team, even zero collective leaders like Blake and others who are part of these conversations, we've talked and prayerfully discerned this, and, and honestly, like I said, we don't normally address politics or specific proposals or things like that. It's just not our culture. And so you may ask, why are you breaking protocol on this one? (laughs) Like, why are we talking about this one today? And I want to say this. I wrote a couple points down because I I want you to hear me clearly. Uh, And if you need to go back and listen to this, it won't be uh, like we're not going to put everything on the screen. But if you need to hear these words again, feel free to do that. Why are we breaking protocol and addressing this proposal in this service, like in this setting? I want to say the main reason is because for us as leaders, for us as a church, this is a moral issue where human lives are at stake. This is not just a political issue. It's not a take it or leave it. There's plenty of things politically that are take it or leave it. Proposal three, in our view, is not one of those. It is a moral issue where human lives are at stake. I want to ask you a couple things. Number one, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider this conversation as you prepare to vote and to carefully read Proposal 3 before making a decision. I'm just going to ask you to do that. Ask you as a church to be that, be that aware of what's, what's actually going, going on here. Secondarily, I want to ask you to recognize that as a man, I will never know what it's like to be pregnant and scared. Not have answers and feel like this conversation is just right in front of me. And I also recognize as a pastor, the last five and a half years of getting to serve here at Center, that abortion has scarred families in our church. This is not just an out there thing. We're just talking about some kind of people out in the abstract. No, this is people in our church. But I do want to say our family, for Lindsay and I, will be voting no on Proposal 3, and here's why. Firstly, we believe that from the moment of conception that human, uh, hu- the human beings have a soul and matter to God, and therefore matter to us. We believe that. Secondarily, I'm going to ask you to not be deceived by the conversations happening or the advertising happening around this proposal. Frankly, this proposal would not only exceed the abortion laws that were in place under Roe v. Wade, but would aggressively expand them. And Michigan would hold one of the most extreme, aggressive abortion laws in the world, not just in the States. Uh, The second part of that I want to say is that I, I recognize in abortion there are always multiple victims. We're not just concerned about the child, even though that matters, it's a moral issue, but I also recognize that there are multiple victims like the father... And primarily the mother who has been lied to thinking that abortion is the only way out. The third thing I want to say, and you need to hear this, is that the gospel, friends, is bursting with hope and restoration and grace and forgiveness and healing. No matter where you are, no matter what your journey is, no matter what your story is as a family or as an individual – And I want you to know too, as a church, friends, we are more committed now than we ever have been to supporting women and children in our community who are facing these unimaginable decisions and challenges. I mean, frankly, that's why we are so strategic in who we partner and who we give towards in our community. Uh, We partner with two kind of incredible organizations right here in our community. The first is Hand to Hand. Some of you have been a part of packing. When you give your money to this church, it goes directly to funding that ministry our, or through our church. And, and hand-to-hand really is addressing, I know Jen's family has been a part of that. My family has been a part of that. It's really addressing the insecurity that happens when people don't have enough food. It's meeting families who, most of the families who we are serving on a regular basis find themselves facing some of these decisions, facing some of these challenges. And we want to do something about that. The second is Hope Unexpected, which is a ministry right around the corner from us, who literally, we have people on our church who are serving on the board. Uh, when you give financially, you help sponsor that. We have uh, groups that have volunteered, individuals that volunteer. We have prayer and ministry that prays towards them. They also are on the ground serving moms who are facing either the trauma of abortions or the challenges that come from actually trying to honor God and having these children not just with prayer and kind of a nice word, but repairing their car when it breaks down, feeding them, providing counseling and group therapy, providing support when they're facing, getting them in touch with pregnancy resource centers across our city. And I'm so proud as a church that we are able to do that, that we're able to not just say that we care, but we give and we care where that's going. And so today, Uh, maybe you already gave, maybe you haven't, but anything you give today, we're just gonna commit above our weekly need to give away to Hope Unexpected. This is a way to say like, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're not just gonna talk about these things. We want to love because only love gets close enough to know, to get involved, to get engaged. And I thought we could kind of close this time. Jen serves our kids week in, week out, has her own kids. I've got London at home. And so I just thought she could kind of close out this time in prayer for us. So I'll hand it over to you. All right, will you all pray with me? Lord, you are so good. And we are so thankful that you are sinless. Because you're sinless, we know you provide truth. And we just put our full faith in that, Lord. This topic is heavy. This topic hits deep for many. This topic is uncomfortable. And we just pray for your peace to calm any anxiety we pray for your love to cast out any hate or division that comes from this lord but we also pray for your guidance as we know that this conversation doesn't end with a vote on november 8 lord we just pray for where we need to go from here the conversations we need to have and the grace that we need to give in your name we pray amen i invite you to stand um Over this next song, we're actually going to engage with what I can think of as the most tangible expression of God's love to us, and it's communion. I don't know your church background. I don't know what you're familiar with, but but here at Center, anybody can take communion. It's, for us, just a real tangible way of, of experiencing God's grace in our lives and God's love in our lives. And so whenever you feel ready during this next song, you and your family, if you're here with somebody or if you're here by yourself, just feel free to take a moment to examine your own heart, reflect, embrace it, and then to, to just kind of swing by in the back of the room, the communion table is ready and set for you. Feel free to take it when you get back to your seat, or you can take it there at the table, whatever you prefer. Uh, but I would encourage you during this next song to to do that, and again, as a way to recognize God's great love for you, great love for me, and great love for those in our community. So let's do that together.